I was alone and I cried. I cried when I went, oh, no, no, this is, I didn't, I wasn't told. I worked it out for myself and the horror I felt was unspeakable. I remember waking up in the middle of the night and finding my cheeks were wet. I remember going out to a coffee with a friend and in the middle of some conversation completely unrelated, I just broke down in tears and sort of pleaded with him, why aren't we doing anything? What can we do? I have a bit of a thing where people ask you versions of the question, which is why are you writing about climate change? And I want to say to them, how could you be writing about anything else? How is there any other subject in the contemporary world you could be writing about? But I also think that clarifying my sense of just how massive the problem is probably made me more committed to the idea that we, we need to move towards a kind of practical solution to lots of these problems. James Bradley is a Sydney writer, wrestling with his feelings of anxiety around climate change. In my dark moments, my mind thinks that part of me won't believe it, and I'm never quite sure when I think about it whether that's about denial or whether that's about just a need to keep hoping or whether it's just that I just at some level can't believe what's going on. I mean, I guess it's like lots of these things, it's a kind of series of shocks. And you think you understand it and there's another piece of awful, awful news. And you look at what's going on and was going on particularly during the El Nino last year. And you want to know how this isn't on the front page of every paper in the world. James's sense of the imminent power and the social complexity of climate change was so overwhelming, he wrote a novel, Clade, to try and come to grips with it. Uh, the book begins kind of tomorrow and is about a family travelling through about the next three generations as the effects of climate change unfold around them and to some extent intersect with their lives. It's a really difficult subject to make fiction about. And I was writing a book, which was a book about everything, you know, and it was everywhere and it was global. And, and one day I thought, well, I could just turn that around and I could write quite a small book about about people's lives and demonstrate what was going on around them all. And I must say one of the things I wanted the book to do was to take the idea and make it tangible to people. This is what it will feel like. This is what it will look like. This is what it will be like to live through a world where all the birds die, where the world is just kind of stripped away piece by piece from us. What was interesting about it was, in a way, how banal climate change became. I wanted to give a sense of how quickly, as you say, things normalised. I was in Sumatra last year in the midst of the smoke cloud and where they're burning the forests, you know, and I mean, they are basically burning the world's lungs. I mean, it's just the most, I mean, this is an environmental calamity. It's unbelievable. And if you're in the middle of it, it's very hard to believe that this is not a kind of global emergency. I mean, for, for weeks, months at a time, you can't see a hundred metres because of the smoke. It's, and that covers thousands of square kilometres. Yet somehow it had already just become normal. The grief environmental scientist Sarah Arthur feels is matched by the joy she finds in natural landscapes. Oh, it's a, it's a freedom. It's an exploration. Sometimes there's just wonder to, to, to disappear into 
the environment and to be a nothing little dot yet somehow still be still be who you are it, it's refreshing to to make yourself tiny to appreciate that you're tiny and your existence is brief and and you can do that when you're somewhere big and somewhere outside and you can forget all your worries when you're thinking, have I got enough water for the rest of this trip? <laughs> Those working in environment or climate sciences carry a burden of knowledge with them every day and an anxiety about loss. But they have to try to integrate their understanding of what's going on with their ordinary lives. I'll start. Sorry, thanks for coming. They include scientists, activists, concerned and informed citizens, and also climate communicators like Katerina Gator. I am from an organisation called Climate for Change. We're a volunteer-powered, not-for-profit, and our mission is to create the social climate in Australia for effective action on climate change. So I realised that if we have any chance of stopping climate change, we need to make huge changes to our whole, everything, our energy system, our agricultural systems. Uh, we have to stop cutting down trees. We have to change the way we dispose of waste. We have to produce less waste in the first place. And the only way we can do that is if our governments act. And that is the biggest and most important thing that needs to happen. Katerina spent much of her life trying to work out what best to do. She's from thoughtful heritage, being the daughter of philosopher Raymond Gator, and she's experimented with a few different environmental businesses, hoping to salve her climate anxiety. It's born of a deep concern for the world and the people of it. My dad says that when I was a little girl, I would walk along saying, poor nature, if I stepped on grass or something. So I guess I probably had a connection from a very early age. But my first memory is actually when I was 12 years old, we were in school watching Behind the News and it was an episode on the ozone layer and climate change. And I have no idea why, but it just, it was like a light went off in my head. Katerina first focused on green living for herself and she studied human rights law and community development, but there were times when her anxiety and grief for the planet immobilised her. I think one of the hardest things about feeling grief at watching climate change unfold and knowing what could come is the isolation that you feel that comes with that grief. You know, you walk around amongst other people you have friends, they, they sympathise but they're not feeling... I guess it's the same with any grief when you feel it and there's a strange loneliness that comes being amongst other people who aren't feeling the same grief that you are. And then I asked myself a really simple question, uh, which was, have I given up hope? Is there no hope? And I knew instantly that the answer was no. Um, I knew there was hope. And so then I knew that what I had to do from now on was do everything I can to realise that hope. That was the easy part. The hard part was working out what I could best do. But once I realised that I wanted to put all my efforts into realising that hope, I was able to get over that sort of incapacitation. And it, it's never struck me in the same way. I still feel terribly, terribly sad sometimes, but I'm able to keep going. Katerina started a series of private dinner parties to encourage conversation, and she'll tell us more a little later on. Uh, it is. Like, I 
get such a buzz out of yeah. it. Like, I actually, like, that the Australian Psychological Society has a team focusing on our responses to climate change, and Susie Burke is a senior researcher. She identifies playing an active role in the democratic process to bring about effective change. If you're not talking about climate change, yeah, then you're joining in a conspiracy of silence around climate change as being too boring to talk about or too scary to talk about or too, you know, overdone to talk about. And climate change needs to be talked about. And for me, when I sit back and think about that, I reckon that political change is the most important thing. So having politicians that are supporting really good climate policies that will help us as a nation to participate in global efforts to reduce our carbon emissions. It, it makes the problem a little bit smaller in a way because you start to see, OK, this is the place where perhaps I can contribute to some change and that can be the area that you can go in. So instead of trying to tackle climate change on all fronts and change your own behaviour and change your light bulbs and put solar panels on, which you might not be able to afford and do everything, you start to focus on something that you think would be impactful. Because I do think that one of the problems we've got, and this is why, you know, I was saying you need to resist the council of despair, is that we've got into a kind of place culturally where we feel, I mean, I think in many cases because we are, incredibly disempowered and we feel that we've lost the capacity to kind of imagine the future. And what we need to take back is the idea is that the future is something we can affect. Because doing something about climate change is not going to happen if we leave it to the technocratic politicians. Doing something about climate change is also doing something about global poverty. It's doing, you know, all of these things are connected and they're only going to be fixed if what we can do is find some way of re-empowering people, re-empowering our political processes. You know, so it is one of those things where it's not just that it's an incredibly difficult problem at a, you know, at a kind of economic and, and scientific level, it's actually a very difficult problem because it's a massive political problem. You know, we need to reclaim the future at some level. Philosopher Glenn Albrecht has coined a number of terms like Tierra Trauma to help define the negative feelings we have that are directly related to environment. If we can name them, perhaps we can come to grips with them. But thinking about all this, how does he manage not to get depressed? Usually two glasses of really good red wine help. So I find that's a, a mandatory self-administered form of, of happiness. However, seriously, is I have to manage my sense of despair and in part I've managed it by moving out of the city where there are birds and wallabies and uh, it's an incredibly beautiful place. Uh, it's full of life. It's full of the things that are foundational for life. I grow vegetables. I enjoy a glass of red wine because it's part of a lifestyle now where I think I'm trying to reverse in my own time, in my own life, the actions of a 63-year-old man who's taken the benefit of being a baby boomer and is now trying to figure out, well, how in the hell can I change a whole lifetime of thinking that this was permanent, this was going to be the good life? You know, so I've put in solar panels. I've got a big lithium battery long before Tesla offered its product. I've got solar hot water I catch all my own rainwater and it's all used on the property. But we know that these individual gestures are no longer enough, but are they enough to help you yes, cope? Yes, at, 
at a personal level, that's why I'm doing them. It's, uh, you know, that gives me space to think about it without feeling the personal guilt and the personal responsibility that I would have if I was not living the lifestyle I'm, I'm leading now. Uh, my reading of our origins and our capacities as a species suggests to me that the alternative is far more exciting, far more interesting to people than the plunge into the depths of despair. And so at the moment, what's going on, the, the catastrophes, the disasters are being hidden because we're, we're locked into trivia, we're locked into entertainment, we're locked into a media that doesn't do the job of telling us what's going on in the world. And so as a result, somebody's got to, you know, toughen up, as they say. But, uh, you know, I'm part of a global movement that wants to arrest that in its tracks. As individuals, it can feel frustrating that we can't do much more than talk, share, act ethically around environmental matters. But that's more powerful when it happens in parallel with technical developments and there are creative partnerships being fostered between a wide range of disciplines, from biotechnology to law. Professor Ove Hugulberg is director of the Global Change Institute at Queensland University. I drove the creation of an institute that's all about solutions because I know that with my colleagues at the University of Queensland, this is a major issue to almost everyone, you know, whether you're in engineering or social science and so on. We now have a series of, of massive global problems to solve, be that on the mitigation side or the adaptation side. And so we created an institute that was focused on the big picture, about bringing academics together out of their different disciplines to start to solve problems. I mean, I'm go it sounds facetious, but it's not facetious. Is this how you sleep at night? Is this how you get yourself through that low-level depression that you spoke about earlier? Very much so. The one that gets me out of bed in the morning and allows me to sleep at night time is the Global Change Institute. We live in an amazing time. We live in a time when four billion humans are connected in terms of, of the internet. We live in a time when we can look back in time and forward in time with a great insight that we have technology on steroids, that there will become these solutions to leaving fossil fuels in the ground, to generating energy using you know, renewable energy as it rains down on our planet from the skies or, or is blown by the wind. But it seems to me for scientists you're juggling a thin line. You don't want to be alarmist, you don't want to be too relaxed. Well, this line that you talk about, which is let's be brutally honest about the science, it's scary and potentially turning people off because they only so much disaster they can listen to and they move on, versus the really important need to not misrepresent the science, but to give hope. That's what we have to do. So I don't believe in watering down the brutality of the science. I, I really don't, the brutal truth. I don't. But what I do insist that we have to do is work on those solutions. And part of this is about the sharing of information. For senior marine biologist Charlie Veron, known as the godfather of the reef, sharing his lifetime of research is key to relieving his despair. Yes, well, I've got an escape clause. And uh, that is a giant website that we have only recently 
launched in draft form. It's free for all to use. We've been building it for 10 years now, and it tells the world about corals. Now, that doesn't have much to do with mass bleaching, but it does empower, and it will empower, people of all persuasions to actually know about what's happening. And we've got a long way to go, but uh, it will be a very positive... I can't imagine a more positive step towards protecting corals. Obviously, uh, humans are multifaceted creatures and we have uh, many cooperative and nice and desirable things and plenty of nasty ones too. But overall, our evolution has required us to cooperate as a social species. And overall, because we have such dependent young, we've had to develop societies built around cooperation to ensure that we have future generations. So I think it's built into our biology through evolution that we have a high degree of cooperation, a high degree of willingness to work with others to achieve common goals. It's only you know, a tiny little slot in human history where we've become so selfish that we can't even think about the future of our own children. I mean, that's really odd. It's really pathological. And so we have to get away from that moment in history and start reminding ourselves that, look, we're bloody animals. We've evolved. We've evolved recently in human history. We've evolved within a pre-existing environment of life and living things, which is just utterly spectacular. And that uh, there's nothing optimistic about wanting to reconnect with that life and nature. It's actually foundational and essential for our own lives. Glenn Albrecht's got a word for the grieving for a landscape which is changing before your eyes. It's solastalgia, and that's been picked up around the globe. But he has other, more positive words which identify a particular connection to the natural environment which we all have. Well, uh, endomophilia is the, the love of the distinctive, the unique in your area. The endemic is also to have a touch of politics about it. The demos is the politics. Uh, so endomophilia is that which is unique to the people and uh, place. So I've, I've created that term. Solophilia, which is the, the idea of the need for humans to collaborate and work together to save much-loved places. I, I, I know we have words like solidarity, but the politics are so fierce around left and right that I decided to create a politics-neutral term that would unite people. Eutearia, uh, which is that feeling of oneness, that oceanic experience, uh, the, the dissolution of the knower and the known or the ego and the, and the outside. I think that's an important concept to have created. And there are many more that I've created that are part <laughs> of uh, the, the landscape of the mind. And Katerina Gator? Well, her quest to do something led her first to running a green cleaning business. But then she started to think it needed to be something bigger. We've borrowed the party plan model from Tupperware. <laughs> Bringing people together for small dinner parties around the country to talk about climate change and climate action. And as an ordinary person, I realised that my day-to-day -day grappling with, um, you know, which tomatoes I should buy or 
which chocolate I should buy was actually distracting me from engaging as a citizen in my democracy and telling the people in our government what I needed from them. And so I started to focus on that. At first that felt good and then I realised I was in a minority and very few people were doing that. And so very early on I realised that the really the most powerful thing I could do as an individual would be to apply pressure to the people who can really make the decisions we really need made and at the same time reach out to other people that I knew and get them on board too to help people actually come to terms with everything and to decide what they want to do about it. That's a longer, deeper conversation and you need to create space for that. But at the same time, we need to do that en masse. And we, we train people up to facilitate good conversations about climate change. We ask people to host a gathering in their home and invite their friends around that they want to have this conversation with. Then we send the facilitator along to facilitate that conversation and at the end of the conversation, we asked them to join us in taking action on climate change on a regular basis, but also to host their own gathering in their home with their friends so that we can grow exponentially. So it's our goal to reach hundreds of thousands Justin of people Ash. over the next few years. So, Justin, you've just been to a Climate for Change gathering. Yes. How do you feel? I feel very, to be honest, I came in, had a full day of work and was quite tired, um, but I feel really energized and excited about what I can do. Um, prior to the event, I actually felt it was out of my control, but it actually feels there is there's opportunity for me to make change, even if it is small. So um, what stood out for you in the gathering other than that? What, what was the biggest take-home message for you? Uh, the biggest take-home message was there are... <laughs> there are MPs and there are things government that may seem, it's, it's the control thing. Um, there are ways that we can actually, through divestments and investments, things we can actually do to take power away from the big businesses and put it back into the voters was probably the biggest takeaway for me. Awesome. So yeah. reclaim our democracy. Yes, exactly. Awesome. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and when you talk about looking for positive outcomes, actions that people can take, what are some of the things that have come up? It's interesting. It's been a little confronting for me to see how most people actually struggle to conceive of themselves as citizens. When they talk about what they can do, they talk very much in terms of what they can do as individuals and they often things like driving less or getting solar panels or eating less meat, all of which are important, or they can see themselves as consumers, so they talk about buying different products. But very rarely do they talk about themselves as citizens, even though in the conversation immediately preceding what they can do, they'll talk about the need for our governments to do more. So that's been confronting, but it's also really inspiring at how quickly once we, we sort of go through an exercise where we talk about the changes that we need and how they might happen and show people how they can have a voice. And by the end, they're feeling much more hopeful than they coming in. And um, what's the next thing you're going to do? I'm going to hang a poster for Climate for Change as soon as I, actually I'll probably hang it at work tomorrow or um, on my way into the city um, or at Fenucci Station, anywhere that I know that will stay for a while. Yeah. Um, just get the word out there. I've just donated it to the cause and I want to actually facilitate or volunteer. Awesome. That's so exciting. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Environmental scientist Sarah Arthur deals on a daily level with her grief and anxiety. 
It's up and down for her as she tries to think, hopefully, for the future. Tell me about hope. Yeah, <laughs> you just have to find it where you can, don't you? It's um, <laughs> uh, having a sense of wonder. So that's where David Attenborough was so wonderful, you know, that he was someone who shared my sense of wonder and he told the story so well. And, hmm, but hope can be hard to find. <laughs> it's very exposing talking about this in a public way, but I, I think it needs to be said. It needs to be heard. Yes, but we, we, we look for hope where we can and we look for small victories and you, you make sure that if you lose a battle, you learn from it so that the next battle you fight a bit better and a bit more cleverly and eventually you win them and you stay cheerful, you stay joyful, keep a sense of humour about it. Um, every time I get on my bike, I want to bring joy to the people around me, even if they are having to slow down. <laughs> I think every moment that I live is somehow tainted by climate change. You know, I, sometimes I look out and I see a blossom on a tree or a bird or a beautiful sunset and I sort of have this mixed feeling of awe and gratefulness for the world and a sadness that knowing that we may be killing our planet. And so that haunts me every day. And yet, doing what I'm doing is really meaningful work because I feel like I'm working on something that needs to be worked on, but also because it involves focusing on the very best of humanity and trying to bring that out in people. And so I do. I have this strange daily existence where I feel grief and great hope and meaning in my life all at once.